don't feel like really doing Rebecca because I have almost nothing to say. All right. We could, but... Do you want to say you have nothing to say? (laughs) I'd rather have nothing to say in the review and say it there. I like the Foo Fighters shit. Thank you. I got this at the concert. I'm showing off all my band shirts lately for Steely Dan and now this. I think you just do it to impress us, uh, <laughs> flipping between like Steely Dan, Foo Fighters. Um, I'm going to pull out my Huey Lewis in the New shirt next. You have one of those? I do. I saw Huey Lewis in concert too a couple years back. How is that? I miss concerts. He was really good. I liked him uh, a lot. I wish I could have seen him a lot closer. Ever since I've been to concerts like in the front row, uh, you know, I'm just like, I can't sit in the back ever again (laughs) there's too much great energy uh i was literally right up against the stage when i saw sticks and oreo speedwagon together and and that was one of the most incredible nights of my life i feel like foo fighters was one of the best like pure rock concerts i've ever seen when i've seen them twice they they just like blew it off both times and so much fun i've seen them twice too i remember the the first time i saw them i was I was really uh, taken because at one point uh, it was just right around when Tom Petty had died, and so they did oh, well, a, yeah. they did a cover of Breakdown, which was really incredible, uh, and that was awesome. The second time I saw, I saw him at Safeco Field, and that was a great show. But it was kind of ruined by a super drunk dude during <laughs> one of the uh, uh, opening acts, and he was literally like, uh, you know, <laughs> going around trying butting up with everyone, and he was a hundred percent trying to to get with my fiance he was hitting on her and getting really grabby and stuff so i pushed him away and then he kept trying to start a fight with me oh man it just it pissed me off so bad for the rest of the the fucking show like i had such a hard time enjoying it one little thing could throw you off a a whole performance and and just ruin the whole mood and atmosphere of the evening yeah i was i was really upset but the show itself was still really great Uh, i'll just have fonder memories of that first one i think that was the last concert i was I went to no. I, I guess the Steely Dan one was after that. Mm-hmm. I saw them with the Doobie Brothers, with my mom. I, I've gone I to like, a number of shows like with my mom. Foo Fighters are like the main like heirs of like Van Halen and like that pure fun '80s rock that's hard and uh, it's it's not complicated or pretentious in any way. It's just God, this music's fucking fun. Yeah, well, I mean, Dave Grohl just has such a fantastic stage presence. Like he's really there he at does. the audience. Do you remember the the tour he did where he, he fell off and he broke his leg? But yeah. he finished the rest of the tour by by playing in like a wheelchair for you know the, rest of the and, dates, and performed with high energy and like high impact rock music from a from a wheelchair or leg brace. Yeah. Pretty incredible. Fucking badass man. <laughs> the the two I've been to, both of me went back on the drums because well you know it's Seattle, oh, yeah. so you have to like channel your Nirvana uh, history, uh, and it it's just incredible to feel that like history of the city too. Mm-hmm. from a Foo Fighters show here. Oh, it really is. It's such incredible how he he went and like really made a, a legacy of his own outside of that. Like, uh, how do you how do you outrun that? Like, it's it's to a point where, where Foo Fighters is so big that you don't even have to talk about him in the context of being the drummer for Nirvana, which, yeah. you know, you would think that pretense would totally like <laughs> usurp him. But no, oh. you know, Foo Fighters is, uh, I would say is, even beyond that in terms of legacy and, and you know, I'd their... agree. like many, many great songs of Foo Fighters. So yeah. many that are just so much fun. Uh, Nirvana doesn't have so much songs I put on anymore. I've heard them all a hundred times. Look, if we're, if we're being honest, 
Nirvana is a little <laughs> overrated, just just a little bit. Like the the legacy really kind of got like lionized and blown up with Kurt Cobain's tragic death, and and that has kind of overwhelmed the discussion of them. They they are an incredible and you know formative uh you know grunge group, probably the one still in that regard. But you know to to say that they're legacy matches that of something like with what Dave Grohl has done with Foo Fighters. It's not what they wanted, right? Like it would have been better if they got what they wanted and they were just like a small jazz band for Seattle, just playing like small clubs and uh, that they, they really got consumed into pop punk. And uh, yeah. that, I, I feel like it tarnished something and like the reputation of them being sold at Walmart now is a little bit like a, that's not what it felt like in the nineties. That's not, it's not it's what Kirk wanted. Energy. Kirk so very much didn't, uh, or yeah, he very much did not want that. He hated the fame and all that. Uh, but you know, I guess uh, you know. Alternatively, then you see like Dave Grohl is all about that and totally leans into it, is having the time of his fucking life. <laughs> it's it's great. That's what you want from music, anyway. Uh, somehow, Dave Grohl, like the members of Pearl Jam, have also endured just by being like the most fun. Uh, you know, non-complicated rock band. They never got too precious to where they destroyed themselves, which is, you know, we have like Alice in Chains, Blind Melon, Nirvana, uh, maybe a dozen grunge Soundgarden. bands. Soundgarden, Soundgarden, can't forget Soundgarden. Mother of Bone, uh, Soundgarden, just like a, a whole slew of the greatest bands of our history are, you know, dead members. Uh, it's real yeah, sad. There, so. There's definitely a really sad legacy with that. that the, a lot of those guys were only very recently. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, like in the '90s, you had like Andrew Wood and Lane Staley, and just like a, all the, all the great talent there. Uh, guys, I think are even better than Kurt Cobain. I feel like his legacy is way too big for his death. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. that's that's what happens, you know. That, yeah. Especially if it if it goes out in such a and it gets inflated. Not to say that he was not amazing, incredible, deserving of the praise, a, a you know genius and a you know pioneer, but even like the greatest of the greats gets inflated and exaggerated. And, uh, you know, we kind of use them to overlook the the rest of the, the other, you know, equal pioneers of, of genres and such, you know, great leaders. But I, I direct any of our listeners, just go listen to mad season, which is like the, the growth and the death of Seattle grunge. That's like the culmination of like Pearl Jam, Screaming Trees, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, all in one band. And, that's all you need and then it ended there um but <laughs> people like dave Grohl were able to like bring it back and make it more fun again like he didn't like route it to a city it was like it was like the sound of the country you know history. god speaking of which i know uh it, it doesn't get as much love as many of the other Foo fighters albums but the actual intent of sonic highways is, it's good it's such a <laughs> well because what it was is that they went and recorded in all the major music capitals of the country, you know, they recorded one song specifically, and it, like all the songs were written with the ideas of Seattle and Chicago and New York and New Orleans in mind. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the the documentary they made yeah. of it as well, but that yeah, it's incredible watching them go and, and like inhabit these spaces, do it. I, I remember during like their their stay at the New Orleans area, they they were like recording in this studio, and then like Dave Grohl would just like occasionally dip out and go across the street in, in Bourbon on you know uh, in the French Quarter to go get a beer in the middle of the day <laughs> Beautiful. which is That's great what you want. and I'm watching I'm like ah oh, I've been there I know that place <laughs> <laughs> you've done the same <laughs> well uh, should we start recording a show are we, are we not a Foo Fighters podcast now I thought we were so we're a Foo Fighters podcast 
Yeah, I guess that's the case. Uh, we'll just go. We'll dictate what we talk about by whatever band shirt I happen to be wearing uh, each week. You've got like five of them, so we have a few topics. To I do. Uh, I, I've been to, to, to many concerts. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to do, or was anyway. <laughs> Welcome back to the Foo Geeks, uh, the Dave Girl <laughs> podcast. It doesn't quite have the same same ring to it. No. Um, I really like horror movies. I'm trying to be as creepy <laughs> as possible. <laughs> Just use your normal voice. I think people uh, will find that creepy like enough. Body horror. Uh, I like watching the bodies decay on screen. Delicious bodies. <laughs> so much body horror. We have actually been watching a, a number of body horror. At least you have what between all the the Cronenberginess, which we'll we'll get to later as well. But mm. Possessor, you mentioned last week, which still isn't here. I'm guessing no no new oh. updates on Possessor release. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a what do we have this week? Um, what did I watch? I I'm watching all the good horror movies, um, all the classics, Leprechaun, Paranormal Activity. Uh, <laughs> I know everything about horror because I've seen like the four masterpieces, The Conjuring, one of them. Uh, I stopped there. Uh, Annabelle like three, I, Annabelle three, anyone? <laughs> Annabelle comes home. Annabelle leaves home. Uh, Annabelle is adopted into a new home. Uh, another great classic. So I've watched some body horror. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have any uh, highlights? Uh, you know, this year is always. Uh, such fun i just I, you know I, I sit back and watch lots of movies all the time i feel like my productive uh, my productivity goes down the toilet in october just because all i care about is watching horror movies of, of all different kinds but you know uh it gets me through the rest of the year i i have actually seven articles i need to write the next three weeks so. jesus <laughs> i'm just watching horror movies instead i finally figured it out with trauma i think that's my victory of the both is I watched Toxic Avenger, and I finally got it. I, I feel hey. like I, I found out why people watch Troma, and I've become a, a disgusting uh, splatter horror fan. <laughs> You've been. I feel disgusted with myself, but also very proud. Welcome to the the Church of Lloyd Kaufman. <laughs> it's good. I, I hear that Toxic Avenger is like the trauma film <laughs> for for people generally. Uh, I've not dabbled in that area myself too much uh but i know you you, you kind of struggled with some other ones uh including the one that came out yeah this, this year <laughs> yeah that's where they're on a, a large party boat uh a large uh party barge and there's uh these whales that fly over the boat and they shit all over the people <laughs> and then they're covered in shit and they're partying anyway there's a lot of drugs it's like Shakespeare's Tempest, except it's just the, the drug is the Tempest. Anyway, that's some real bullshit. Uh, shit's <laughs> in the title, and it, it self-describes. It reviews itself. Um, there's, what else was there? I watched, um, what's the other one? The, the Class of Newcomb High. That's oh, okay. where I started getting there. I thought I was halfway to, to the fandom, and I was like, I'm like halfway there. I think this is the best one they're going to make, but I think I'm out after this. Uh, so to find um, this one, to finally get Toxic Avenger and like explore their weird splattery superhero story. Um, it's like exploitation of like a nerd at the classic high school. He's a janitor and then uh, he gets put in a tutu as he goes to meet a girl who's not interested in him. Uh, then there's a toxic chemical spill, same as class at Newcomb High. Um, and then <laughs> uh, he becomes infected. He becomes the, the guy and 
and he takes vengeance on all the bad guys in the town. I I think I fell in love with it when uh, he's like such a grotesque creature. He's just like murdering people left and right. And uh, after one of the one of the big murder scenes in a cafe, uh, it's a Mexican taco shop, and there uh, uh, some dogs are killed. People's faces are put into blenders. Uh, uh, a lot of splattery action. But then uh, all the people made a, a shirt that said, uh, um, I love the hero monster. And I'm like, this is cool. I, I want to be like part of this cult that loves this thing. Because people are just making a, a shirt with like this fucked up monster design on it. And I think it's adorable. I, I think that's what cult films are all about. Yeah, the, I'd, I'd say the, the Kaufman films, all the trauma stuff really has that kind of like familial aspect to the, yeah. the following that everyone is like really in on it and you know it's like a you know a cult of brethren so to speak and that you're all like honed in on this specific silly ridiculous thing and it is kind of like in in the same way i would say like uh it feels to me like kind of like the john waters following in the same way that they're these yes. you know loud trashy you know <laughs> over the top ridiculous things that everyone enjoys because of that and because it's just a, a group of the same people making the you know the kind of movies that they find fun and entertaining to to make and everyone watching really can can get in on that and enjoy the the aspect of of that process i've only given it a six out of ten but it's like my highest six possible it's not oh, like a genuinely still... six it's a it's a six i want to fucking watch it theater with a bunch yeah. of um other deplorables like me <laughs> look i i don't think anyone who watches the trauma films are going to be offended by you giving a middling rating for it they know there's a ceiling no. of quality here like that's not what people are are in here for like this is not you know it's almost the, the point right th this is not <laughs> the height of filmmaking by any measure have you seen any of them no i i have not uh i don't I, think it's your wheelhouse but... it's probably not uh i'm not the kind of person who like has an easy time enjoying bad movies quote unquote like or like you know kind of over the top or, or grotesque in this kind of way uh there, there are a couple films have, that have kind of like scratched that itch for me in in some ways but but generally i'm like i want quality with my garbage you know <laughs> i just want some some real garbagey garbage this is this is just about right it's not like it aged badly or anything i mean they're still throwing like flagrant n words, and I mean it's it's <laughs> it is deplorable, but it's it's like if that's the intention and the idea is to completely offend. I mean, maybe they shouldn't be doing it, but I, look, look, I sometimes, feel like it's also the aim of the project, right? Sometimes you just have to admire the audacity of something exactly. like that to be so bold and and brash, you know, like that, and to really just not care and, and to push the boundaries in the most ridiculous ways like that in and of itself is is admirable that's what you know attracts people to these kind of films it's so audacious and i feel like the gore is actually pretty good i feel like i i got to this level with toxic avenger where it it does have good practical effects and it is well considered i mean it's uh, some of the scenes that are even shot well it's ridiculous that it has these qualities but uh, the worst acting you've ever seen, which makes it uh, more endearing in some way. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, again, nobody expects, I think, great actors from this. You know, yeah. it's a lot of the same people, I believe, as well. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and again, like that familial aspect of coming in. You know, you you imagine it in the same way that you and your friends, you know, are making these kind of films or or were or dreamed of in some capacity, and that's really what it is. You know, people like 
like Lloyd Kaufman are realizing their dreams. You know, how can you shame yeah. anyone for having a good time making a movie together? I, you can't. I, I mean, these are the kind of movies that would make me want to make movies. I believe, like, whether or not Troma's the best, they probably inspired, like, a whole generation of filmmaker that, that makes it kind of important. Yeah, yeah. Again, maybe not high art, but, you know, film isn't exclusively for art purposes. <laughs> horror, horror is never considered in the high art without the exceptions anyway. So it's like they're just playing into what genre is, I think. And I mean, splatter horror, especially anything with bodily functions. I think we look at as um, the lowest of lower arts, but I, I believe there's still qualities to it. Uh, just anything that deals with bodily functions is rarely critically you know, yeah, people, as one of the great movies. people still, I'd say, haven't realized that crass can be class, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, th- there are definitely cases, uh, you know, where, where it reaches that. Like, again, you could, you could argue trauma is on the opposite end of the art scale from Cronenberg here, and that they're both yes. attempting, they're, they're using the same. Uh, avenue but getting to different places along the way i would call you know some of cronenberg's work certainly uh artful mm-hmm. you know but it, it all depends you know there's there's room for everything i think i think cronenberg kind of rescued that genre into like that place where it could be considered critically so uh, we'll get well, to it more of his yeah. later what have you been watching uh I've been watching a, a number of things. You know, this year I, I tend to watch like a good mix of uh, old and new stuff. Um, just last night I watched uh, Psycho 2 uh, with uh, after having wanted to see it for a couple of years from various points of recommendation of people saying it, it has no right to be as good as it is. And mm-hmm. that's that's about the best way you can sum it up because the idea of making a sequel to Psycho is about the most asinine and, you know, unearned thing you could possibly consider who who wants that it, you know can you imagine like a sequel to vertigo or something alternatively i'd be dumb it seems be- like the best you could do is like gus vincent just like reshooting the whole thing i mean why would you do anything else <laughs> i mean that's a whole other scenario certainly uh but yeah um what, what works with psycho 2 is that they they really take the concept of a continuation of the story and 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 give it an, an, an earnestness and like uh, really explore that avenue truthfully. Like the, the whole plot of it is focused around the rehabilitation of Norman into society and this idea of dealing with the mental trauma left over of, you know, the, the psychosis of mother haunting him and, you know, people, wow. people like rejecting him from society and like, you know, uh, this idea of trying to, to reintegrate back in and, and function as again a person. All the while, there's a mystery element as more murders are happening in, in the town and around the area that seem to be linked to Mother and Norman. Uh, and, and there's like constant phone calls that are plaguing him with like, you know, that someone's like like calling him as Mother and like, oh, like uh, tor- torturing him. Cool. Oh yeah, and it's interesting because most the, the, all the time you don't know is he still killing people? Is he still not rehabilitated? Is someone actually calling him? Is he just having these weird, like, you know, hallucinations and visions? And and the whole while, it's it throws you all these series of red herrings and, and misdirects and suspicions about everyone. And it incorporates, you know, 
uh, a lot of the, the visual motifs of the original film in meaningful ways. Like, you know, you get like a recreation of the beginning of the shower sequence at one point, mm-hmm. the famous overhead shot uh, coming out of mother's bedroom and stabbing the detective in the film, the peephole makes, you know, common reoccurrences. And they never feel like cheap references. They, they feel like, you know, important historical contextualizations onto this new narrative here, you know, the continuation of that legacy. It feels really earned. Uh, and I would definitely recommend it just as a film objectively in and of itself. It's it's not perfect. Uh, you know, it has some of uh, cliche issues. It does like, <laughs> like a, a honest sequel would, I guess, uh, extrapolate a little too much at the end, like Psycho does. Uh, it's marred a bit by some cheap slasher tropes. Like the kills in this are just like, ridiculous and <laughs> like they, they feel more like a Halloween sequel than they do a psycho oh. successor. There's one point where, where a character is is stabbed through the mouth uh by uh you know with the big kitchen knife and it just looks ridiculous. And it's so out of place for this otherwise kind of like somber and you know psychologically focused mystery film. It doesn't feel like a cheap slasher until those kills happen. Like and they and they feel more like a product of you know, the time and necessary of, of studio enforcement than they do earnest within the film. So they're, they're a little jarring and they take you out whenever they happen. And uh, they, they definitely made me laugh because of just how jarring out of place they were. It feels like such a hard thing to live up to. Um, I, I feel like any Hitchcock's really hard to go and remake. Like we were going to talk Rebecca, but I'm just going to do that review. I mean, why yeah. would you, why would you make something that Hitchcock has like, uh, even those directors are like, yeah, we just tried not to do it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you have you reason. have to avoid it uh, in a case like this exactly. where it's uh, where Psycho is literally playing off of you know the the predecessor here. You know, it it kind of has to be in conversation with the first film, and it does a terrific mm-hmm. job of that while building off of Norman's character. Um, I think in a fantastic way. It's definitely worth recommending to anyone who, who has interest uh, in it. It's a great mystery film uh, in and of itself. Um, while while still you know preserving the legacy, I don't know so much about the other sequels. Uh, I I don't know if I'll touch those, but I have, you know, I had enough recommendations for this this next one, and I was excited to get to it, and it turned out to live up to those expectations uh, that were set. It's not what I expected you to come with about uh, Psycho Two. When I saw that you watched it, I thought it was going to be like a blatantly negative take that it could never live up to the it doesn't Psycho. it doesn't try and be like the original psycho it's stylistically different it's it's inherent to its time but it's also it it builds off of it it's a it's a smart sequel in that way and it and it's earnest in its intent to do something different while still preserving the spirit of the uh original film which is all you can ask for a sequel to do it's you know so really it, it it earns its place it earns its you know reputation there i think it does a fantastic job uh, we've got more Hitchcock we should come back to eventually. Uh, oh, yeah, of there's course. So many. <laughs> there's uh, he, he had a long and prolific career, and there's so many classics, you know, certainly that we can talk about. Maybe we'll do something like North by Northwest next. That one's always fun. Yeah, that would be a good one for us. Uh, there's been uh, some new releases, some new releases of old movies. Um, <laughs> speaking of preserving intentions, we have Memories of Murder coming back. Um, it's probably been almost like what 15 20 years since that came out and 
think it's been years? like 20, 20 years. I'm going to look up the yeah. exact date so we don't sound like dummies. Like 2003-ish? 2003, yeah. So okay. 17 years. Just about that. So last year, um, well, okay. So the intention of the movie, uh, Bong Joon-ho has said, is that he wanted to create something where it was like, uh, you've seen it, correct? So I'm not spoiling. Yes. Yeah, much, no, right? I've, okay. I've seen the movie. Great movie. So, yeah, it feels like the killer is watching the movie and there's a conversation between movie and killer and that it looks like uh, by the end of the movie, they're looking into the frame and they're breaking the fourth wall and saying, we know the killer's out there and, and you might be watching the movie and um, the eyes of investigation always tell truth. That's one of the themes of the movie. So uh, he looks into the, uh, the other's eyes basically and as one of you out there is watching it. But uh, just last year, they found the actual killer in South Korea that this movie is based on. So uh, it, it's more timely than ever. Um, it might not have ever achieved that effect. We don't know if he ever got to see it because he might've been in jail the whole time it's been out. Um, but it is brought back with the realization of who that was. Right, it's not like, uh, I would say that new context that we have since the, the film is based on the actual, you know, case of, uh, you know, the most famous serial killer in, uh, South Korea, you know, that has basis in that. That doesn't, the fact that he is now caught and, you know, we are aware of, you know, who it is, it does not change the film in any kind of not inherent so way. Uh, because, of course, like any good film, it's not just about this historical, you know, part. It's, you know, it's about a grander story of, you know, uh, human, you know, uh, uh, plight. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, this uh, nature of, of murder and such, of course. <laughs> But the it does kind of give us an interesting now reflection on it. Uh, I've always thought it's kind of interesting and, and a little dumb that a lot of American viewers are, you know, constantly comparing the film to David Fincher's Zodiac, <laughs> even though it came out four years later. Yeah. It, why would you compare something that came out before to something from later? Because, because there are too many, like, Fincher fanboys out there who want to proclaim think... the, the greatest uh, of all time. <laughs> I think it's like everyone saw that first and so they believe that in their mind is yeah. the predecessor in some way. Um, it, it makes sense. It's closely following this movie. I just don't think that's a fair point of comparison for either. So. Certainly. I'd say the, the new wave of uh, Korean cinema kind of didn't hit uh, America until another couple of years, like 2010-ish. Uh, yeah. So it, it makes sense that people thought of Zodiac and, and then saw the similarity to Memories of Murder, even though the films were made entirely independent of one another. The yeah. the the crossover and similarities is, uh, you know, incidental and inherent to the material and the similarities of the, you know, Korean serial killer and the, the Zodiac killer of our own history more so than it is to the films themselves, you know, uh, riffing off of one another. I think it sets up so expertly in Memories of Murder, the frustration of a rural investigation specifically. Uh, uh, it's all about like these green fields that Bong Joon-ho gets to explore. The cinematography is really beautiful there. Um, it is about like the yellows and greens and vibrancies and nothing really bad could happen in this pastoral town. We're looking at it like uh, it's glowing fields and everything has an energy. And of course now uh, revitalized a little bit to what is it like 4K now, I believe. So revitalized with that and better sound, um, it impacts a lot more. I think the only thing the history of it changes is it alleviates some of that frustration by the end. Uh, uh, you feel like you're sitting with the movie for like two and a half hours or whatever. And then, uh, you know, it, it ends and we don't know. Uh, 
just to know that uh, something was done and, and someone was found uh, regarding this case. Uh, such a brutal case, too. Just the way they put, like, the girls' panties over their head after sexual assaults and uh, leave, like, you know, a pretty young dead thing down, like, in the most green, beautiful thing. Like, the contrast of that scenario still stand out. Uh, there's there's a lot of aesthetic value. I just like this a whole lot still. It's a it's a fantastic film, and the new restoration, you know, sounds like uh, you know, it's very exciting, uh, especially as uh, people are even kind of more revisiting uh, Bong Juno's filmography ever since his Oscar win earlier this year with Parasite, and uh, you know, really uh, upholding his his filmography is you know even greater. And I would say Memories of Murder from the ones I've I've seen thus far is definitely up there. You know, one of the best. Certainly putting it on the level of something like Parasite. Um, and uh, it, uh, I like it even better than Zodiac for sure. If we're going to continue that comparison, <laughs> sure. I think it might be a bit better. Uh, so, sorry, Fincher fans. <laughs> I took a first date in high school to Zodiac. It might be the most awkward date I've ever planned. Uh, all I, all I think about like... is is that scene where you know where <laughs> there is that couple and you know the first murder scene. Yeah, that seems very awkward. <laughs> It's such a dumb high schooler. I was like smoking a cigar in my car. I was like, why would why would women be attracted to someone who's like smoking a cigar in their car, driving them to a murder movie? It just just a little bit strange. I know I know it probably wasn't the case, but I can't help but imagine like using it you, you having a giant like gangster cigar out of your mouth, like Al Capone or something. <laughs> I know. <laughs> It was a nice cigar, but uh, I was different in high school. Uh, a very strange date anyway. I, I don't know why you would go to that as a first date either. I don't think I even told her till we got there. I just said, I'm taking you to the movies. We'll see. I don't know. I guess there are worse first dates uh, you could go on. I don't think people generally think about what it is. Like They're not planning yeah. like what the film that will get them the most tail will be when they <laughs> you know are going to the movie theater. You know, your your options are your options, and you just got to pick. <laughs> at that point in your life, like, well, especially before, like, pre-internet and stuff, I think the idea is just to get out of your house so you can see someone. I think the whole excuse is let's spend four or five hours together somehow. Movies take a long time. Let's go. Yeah. And to say, again, it kind of goes back to the idea of a shared kind of like, like this communal experience of the theater. Movies, you know, have long been this, uh, you know, idea that, that we can take in together and it's a popular form of you know uh emotional you know uh expression and you know uh back and forth uh, as with any kind of art form you know like i imagine before that you know a date to a museum is is comparable in the same kind of sense sure. but it's a bit more of a you know it's it's more populous medium here and, and has been for mm. a long time uh you know the idea that it's just there for like kind of, you know, a dark room to neck in is, you know, I think is largely part know, of it. <laughs> well, well, I was going to say, uh, you know, exaggerated. Um, you know, I think people do go to the movies together to share in it because it is this, you know, cultural, uh, you know, exchange that we have with it. And, and I would say the most predominant one, you know, more than anything, it's something that everyone can, can universally partake in and have, you know, opinions on because it is a form of entertainment as much as it is, you know, expression. Uh, if you're in high school now, don't don't smoke a cigar in your car while you're picking up a, a girl. To, it's a, when, her, when her doctor father comes out to the car and you have the cigar trying to stuff it out. Cigars, cigars smell strongly. Yeah, uh, yeah, more, more than 
most other smoking uh, apparatuses. Are we going to go back to... I'm surprised you're not vaping again this week. Uh, no vape guy right now. Have uh, you moved on to cigars again? Is that what it is this week? I started methamphetamine instead. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, quick uh, progression, but here we are. You're going to be bouncing off the walls later in the show. <laughs> Uh, speaking of meth, uh, no. Uh, so I watched uh, David Burns American Utopia. Fucking fantastic. I'm that's so more. I'm, I imagine that's more of a cocaine kind of film. Than yeah, that meth. would be more appropriate, I believe. <laughs> how how was it? I read your review this morning, and it sounded like uh, such a kind of like revelatory, you know, breath of fresh air kind of you know uh, entrance into the the scene today. It takes a pretty big guy to admit when he's emotional, and I'm a pretty big guy. So <laughs> that was a that was like the heaviest emotional experience of my year so far. Is uh, I was like sobbing in five or six parts. Uh, just uh, that he takes the context of his own work, and then he extrapolates that context. And the idea is to get an inclusive marching band. So uh, he plays into like the pan Af- African rhythms of his old music and. Uh, some of the multicultural world music that influences some of the great talking heads. But he also like gives that in a format that fits the modern day. Um, directed by Spike Lee, it has, uh, he does a lot more than Jonathan Demi did with like Stop Making Sense. Like he goes for the overhead shots and uh, he goes for some um, very detailed shots. He, he's able to key into specific details on the stage. Um, it's, it's never just uh, David Byrne this time. I, I mean, there's even points where he says, like, you know, I too have to change. And then uh, he does um, Janelle Monae's uh, Hell You Tom About, um, which is like the the big rallying song since Ferguson. I mean, that's a incredible, you know, everyone's saying, yelling, say their name. And it's it's such a beautiful moment of catharsis, the best I've experienced this year. Um, the only problem is it's it's not as good of an album as Stop Making Sense, so, but that might be the best concert album there ever was. So, it, I mean, it's really hard to live up to that, but the, the filmmaking is a little bit better sometimes. Uh, the performance is like a blank canvas of a stage, and it really cues into something else that Stop Making Sense doesn't, which is David Byrne's um, participation with the audience, that it is a conversation between audience and uh, a musician, which is special in itself. And, oh, man, I, I was sobbing. That sounds uh, wonderful, especially the the social relevance of it. It seems uh, particularly poignant, uh, and to have someone like Spike Lee kind of behind the the camera there also helps uh, reinforce that idea, since he is such a you know vocal uh, proponent of you know the issues going on in today, and particularly blending that with the uh, Pan African you know style. It seems like uh, Burn is really tapping into you know the uh, the voice of today. Uh, and and joining in and being a, a proper ally more more than anything here, uh, it's which great. Is, it's, which is it's wonderful not, to see because yeah. I think I think that message is somehow sometimes lost uh, in in some of the the rallying today because everything is so racially focused as it as it ought to be and has to be. It's you know sometimes people get lost in this idea of like a, a segregation of you know ideas when really it is a an allied fight you know for for equality and this idea of, of sharing in culture you know while it's something as as more you know uh white people need to be a little bit more aware of in terms of not you know uh, uh appropriating you know too much they have to understand as well that you know it's it's not like an exclusionary you know practice like it is something to be shared still culture yeah <laughs> 
He's, he wrote uh, Janelle Monet and said, what would you think of a white guy of a certain age covering your <laughs> rallying song? <laughs> would it be too much? And she said, it's a song for everyone. And I think that's what American Utopia is. It's not a white guy on stage. It's a white guy with a band of, you know, 14 very diverse people. And they all have an equal voice in the music. They, they all have uh, something to contribute and say. Well, that just shows how, how aware... David Byrne is obviously of his place in this and what he needs to do like that, you know, that is him reaching out and talking to someone, you know, who, whose voice is important to be heard and, and asking how he can, you know, if, if this is the right way for him to participate, you know, uh, in the same way I say, I, I know in your review, you mentioned that there's a moment where they, uh, you know, kind of homage to uh, Colin Kaepernick and his, his kneel for, for uh, quality there. Yeah. And I would say that, that, that kind of messaging and reaching out to, people who, who have a better understanding of culture, you know, a great example is with Kaepernick as well, who, who was reached out to by, you know, a, a Marine veteran who gave him the suggestion of kneeling in, in the first place to more properly respectfully protest, you know, mm-hmm. the injustices during the, the national anthem. And so it shows how we is, you know, a very multi, you know, cultural, you know, populace here can work with one another to you know put across the correct message of equality you know and you know uh to to mend the the wounds of our nation there's uh, there's such a good feeling of inclusion when he says that um he talks about how he was a scottish immigrant his parents brought him over when he was very young and how his whole band wouldn't happen without immigrants i mean there's it is really like a story of america within a couple hours um it begins with them holding like a plastic brain and talking about our circuitry of our brain, how we had more connections when we were young and how we could reforge some of those through inclusion and rethinking of things that we haven't thought about for a while. Um, it's all put on uh, American Utopia for Broadway. It was uh, put on with um, Headcount, which is a very popular uh, uh, voting and polling um, system where uh, if you want to go to their website and register, uh, the whole thing was to get everyone who came to the concert registered to vote. And uh, that that message is so vital right now and uh, uh, important to get headcount out there, too, because they're doing the right thing. And uh, combining up with that when we need it most, it's a good thing. Yeah, uh, I guess that's as good a time as any to, for us to endorse the act of, of voting as uh, please, your, your right as an American citizen. Please, um, you know, without indicating in which direction just as important you know as an institution to to vote it's your you know sacred right as an american the the most uh you know patriotic thing you can do for for the country and your most inalienable power is to to vote and participate not just in in presidential elections but elections across the board state elections county elections everywhere you know the people that you you know choose to you know represent you in in our country uh, is the most uh, vital and influential power you have, you know, as an individual. And it's important to to exercise that at every opportunity. I think like David Byrne says here, why is only half the country over a little bit of half the country voting last time for Trump? I mean, uh, if we had the whole voice of the country, it wouldn't happen. So, uh, and, and why is only 20% in local elections, which is what really gets him fired up? Uh, why is, why are you allowing someone else to decide your whole, child's fucking future it matters so much more and really for a lot of those people you know especially 
even on the other side here, uh, a lot of the more small government, you know, side of people, conservative mm -hmm. uh, minds, uh, you know, the local elections are really what matters even more than the presidential ones. They're the ones that's going to have, you know, uh, power over what's going to happen in your daily life, in your community. Uh, and eventually they'll, they'll work their way up into the, the larger census too in the state and then the federal government yeah. as well. The, the people you elect today to represent you in, in the small uh, sense are going to be the people in 10, 20 years who represent you federally. Trump may hurt us the most and annoy us the most on Twitter, but obviously our, our local elections are so vital and can't be ignored. It's a, it's important, of course, to acknowledge that, you know, it's a, you know, if, if you dislike Trump, he's a symptom of, of a greater system and, you know, yeah. so much more going on. He wasn't put there by the people inherently. He was bolstered by a party, you know, uh, a number of individuals who, who pushed him into the mainstream along with the voice of the people. It's a, it's a complex system that has multiple moving parts in contributors and you as an individual are as much an important part of it as, as anyone else. I just feel like anything that's wrong with Trump cannot only be wrong with Trump. It has to reflect a whole movement in the world. And we have to look at what that is and deconstruct that systemically before we can find solutions. It's not going to get one guy out of the White House and be like, we fix racism again. No, <laughs> I would say we've never fixed racism. We've only improved it in the most minuscule and uh, insignificant of ways over time. You know, the problems that stem back from, you know, the, the 1850s are, are still prevalent today, you know, and every opportunity we've had to really reform them have, have been, uh, mitigated you know in you know every step of the way yeah it's hard like every every civilized culture has a racism in it it's it's hard to say if there's a solution so i think people get frustrated but we have to do the work to get there there there's no all-encompassing solution for sure yeah. there are only small uh solutions that we have to you know a, a lot of small solutions that we have to incrementally continue to make and push for you know and, and even even the big ways and whatnot uh, you know, so the achievements of what we did in, you know, 1865 and 1968, you know, they're huge and monumental, but we also could have and should have done so much more and need to today still just because we didn't then doesn't excuse us our inaction now. I think it's so vital for us to have people like David Byrne coming up with a platform like this to, to broadcast it on HBO Max. It, it's a big thing. Hopefully, hopefully everyone appreciate it. I don't know how, uh, far-reaching david byrne will be for the the, or, the populace you know he's, or hbo max honestly yeah uh and and such a uh certain and and un you know questionable political message it sounds like that the film you know proposes uh, might be alienating for people who uh you know choose to be ignorant of, of some of the the racial issues still ongoing today but uh, it's an important one i think nonetheless and it sounds you know very wonderful and the people who are ignorant to David Byrne's greatness will probably be ignorant anyway here, you know, afterwards. Uh, like, you know, come on, how are you not a huge fan of Talking Heads by this point? I mean, if you're, whatever party you are, the musicians you like don't don't like the right wing. So let's be honest. All the messaging of the music, it's like uh, Paul Ryan saying Rage Against the Machines is his favorite band. <laughs> they can't escape what they dislike. Uh, you know, we have to make sure of that too. Is that the point where irony died for the United I States? Was. I don't know. <laughs> Either that or we've always lived in irony. And uh, it, it's always been an ironic country. 
It sounds like, uh, I guess, just kind of going back, I remember a couple of years ago, this this Broadway performance thing, not not nearly in the same capacity, but it reminds me of uh, Bruce Springsteen's um, Broadway show that they put mm-hmm. on Netflix uh, a couple of years back, which was also fantastic. And again, yeah. so Springsteen is another, you know, uh, vocal, you know, uh, you know, proponent in, in the political sphere as well, you know, and always has been uh, one of the most infamous cases of, you know, uh, politicians using, you know, the music of, you know, completely, uh, you know, uh, conflicting uh, artists, you know, is like Reagan and his campaign trail using Born in the USA, which is a highly critical, you know, song of Vietnam and Springsteen, you know, was, was yeah. not happy with that in a very obvious sense. Cause again, it's, it's, you know, it's done in a kind of, you know, satirical and, you know, dramatically ironic. Read the sense. lyrics. Come on. <laughs> they don't, they don't care. They don't care. The, they that's don't the thing. They, they know, don't they? They have uh, to know. Uh, maybe, or, or I don't know. I, I don't have faith that these guys are smart enough to be willfully ignorant. <laughs> I think they're just inherently, but regardless, Trump was playing. Uh, Trump was playing Macho Man last night at his rally, which is uh, Anderson Cooper couldn't hold his face together anymore, uh, which is a beautiful thing. I don't know. You, you kind of wish that copyright law was a little more, you know, strict yeah. in in some ways, but at the same time, not because in outside of these political contexts, it would be very uh, hard. I don't know, but it's also just hard to reinforce to enforce and as much as these musicians will come out against, you know, uh, these uh, flagrant uh, misappropriations of their music, it's, it's not really going to have any consequence in the end, but I, I guess it's fortunate that, Maybe. Uh, I don't know. I, I can't imagine Trump using any uh, talking head songs for his message though. <laughs> I doubt it. Uh... Burning down the house might be most appropriate, but <laughs> That would be a good fit. <laughs> He'd do it unironically too and wouldn't understand why. Yeah. <laughs> At his inauguration, that would be fun. Uh, let's not let that happen. Um I feel like we've had a we've had a string of good luck. We had like seven, eight months where new movies weren't uh nine or ten out of tens, and then we had three in a row. We had Possessor and uh Memories of Murder and uh, American Utopia, and that's it for the year. So happy to be there. Yeah. I know I might throw in last last week I talked about was it last week or was it the week before I talked about Feels Good Man. I thought that was Oh yeah. That was one of the good. one of the best documentaries I think I've seen in a long time. Recommend that for anyone again. Uh and again it's this is like again it's a social, you know, prevalence as well. Particularly helpful, you know, in this uh tumultuous election cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's been a few things. Uh, it's not the worst movie year. I feel like we're finding other avenues like this and um, like uh, Hamilton, where there's there's other options of what you can release, and we're getting a lot of like table readings of old films. Right. But I I miss the cinemas. Yeah, I I agree. I miss them too. I think about them all the time. Particularly my favorite local cinema. I would love nothing more than to participate. That I just feel like. I don't know. I don't know about you, man, but I'm, you know, definitely feeling down lately. Life just feels so stagnant. I feel like I can't change my direction in any sense, which, which, you know, makes it worse because before this even shut down, I was already feeling that, you know, stagnation in life. I'm like, I got to make a change. And then bam, like just, you know, it feels like there's no direction to go in. I know that there is, you know, cause the world has kind of gone back to operation maybe against, you know, uh, how we should, but 
uh, I, I just still don't know what to do and, and everything I did any kind of like, you know, I, I miss the idea of, of social, you know, being like, I'm, I'm a very social person. I loved going out and doing things and seeing people. And now it's just so difficult to, and particularly in this, like, this is the most like social interaction I get, you know, in a, in a week, you know, most of the time. And it, God, it, it largely is for me, other than doing work, I, I feel like I don't talk to anyone other than my wife or my daughter. And on it's more like, you know, this, this is unnatural for, for human, you know, behavior for existence, you know, and it's, it's difficult to conduct, you know, a friendship over, you know, the, the internet, you know, like you just crave nothing more than to to be and see with these people, even our friends who we've never seen in real life yet, who live, you know, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away. We're like, I want nothing more than to fly over there and embrace you in a giant bear hug. It would be nice, and I'm sure we're going to get together sooner than later. I'm sure things will relax enough next year to make it possible. We, yeah, I mean, next year is just such like this nebulous concept because you know it's like, yeah. when will things come? When will that vaccine come? When will things be safe enough to operate again? But I think slowly we're finding ways to interact with one another again, and things are yeah. becoming under control. Like I can, I can see a light. It's a far away light, but there is a light at the end there. And uh, I see, I see the potential to get to get back anyway. Yeah, <laughs> but I just, you know, there, I, I agree. There's nothing more I want than to be back in the, you know, the cinema with the people I love again, and to see yeah, movies absolutely. in that communal sense, and to be exposed to, you know, these these new experiences. Um, I, I want to go pursue all of the the art houses that I did not get the chance to before you know i want to travel around and see the the different showings and what people will curate so that's my big hope is they don't close before the time i get back i want to be able to go to all the art house theaters here the historic ones i don't want them to uh, shut down i want the others to come back i mean people are like why do you want to rush them back are you in a death cult i'm like well i want <laughs> businesses to survive basically like i want that to be an option for my daughter to have a historic theater in Seattle, not to have them all shut down. The best way to do so is to to support them through donations and memberships and, and whatever way you can financially. It's a shame that, uh, you know, on a federal level, we aren't doing more to support the businesses, particularly the movie theaters. Uh, you know, the chains are, are struggling very much right now. You know, word of Regal and AMC closing down potentially permanently are, are kind of whispering on the wind. Uh, though, they're they're less the institution that I'm concerned about than the small, you know, privately owned, you know, historical theaters, uh, you know, which are keeping the the history of, of cinema alive and the experience of, of movie going more so. The multiplexes are are very different. If you've never been to a, an independently owned, you know, theater, then uh, you you don't know what that that joy kind of is as much. Uh, you know, if if the worst happens and many of these chains close across the country and theaters, sh- you know, movies shift entirely to the s- streaming, uh, you know, I'm not convinced that that's not entirely a good thing. Uh, Cause I think we'll get rid of all of the, the candy munchers and, and baby screamers and, you know, all of the horrible people, the phone texters and stuff that, you know, okay. ruin the, 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 the sacred institution of the cinema. It's just that the institution is gone. Um, it- it would be too hard for me to handle. I I can't lose all theaters, but I, I've supported Grand Illusion and Arc Lodge Cinema so far, which I, 
I haven't even been to Grand Illusion. I'm like, that's right by the Scarecrow. I want to support that area and make sure I could go to that once we lift our thing. Because that's that was like my theater I always wanted to get to, like a grimy old institution. Have you gone to Scarecrow at all since the pandemic started? No, unfortunately. <laughs> come on, come on. That's that's one way you could be supporting another institution. Again, they're one of the biggest I, you know, I, well, part of it for me is I want to walk around the aisles. I, I mean, if I can't go inside, I, I don't. I want the movie rental experience of finding I, things on the shelves. I agree. I miss that too. That's even that's even more of a of a lost pastime than the theater is really. Like, if you're lucky oh, enough yeah. to have a a honest to god like you know library of movie rentals from everywhere, like please God, you use that. You know, I'm still going to Movie Madness here regularly, uh, but it's all, you know, it's all pickup service. You know, I've got to reserve everything online and, and go and I don't want it. that. <laughs> I want to find things I don't know about when I get a, a Scarecrow. Like, that's the appeal to me. I don't want to, like, go online and choose three things I already know about that I could find online somewhere. Sure, sure. I, I understand that. Because, of course, like, the searching and seeing these, like, giant halls of, you know, yeah. theaters from, from ceiling to floor, you know, is, is such an incredible experience in and of itself. What, what I'd give to do, like, a just have, like, an hour in their horror section for this <laughs> next month. Like, they, they need to set up a, a service where you can get into a hazmat suit and kind of just, like, walk around. Or, like, you get into one of those big, like, you know, rubber balls, and you can kind of roll around the whole place and look at everything. <laughs> Walk around inside a actual scarecrow would be a good <laughs> gimmick, I think. Scarecrow is so amazing, man. We we have to go visit it once once we reopen. We we do. You know, I love movie madness here in Portland, uh, but but Scarecrow is like it's it's like a chapel you know it's like this huge uh place you know but it's got like multiple floors of movies too yeah it's ridiculous floors and it winds around the whole building on both sides and they say it's the largest like archival collection of like uh physical movie media so it's huge yeah so if you got any of those near you please you know seek out and support them because they are uh I, i say as vital an institution to the preservation of of film history you know as uh, anything else out there yeah and for us we have uh, grand illusion arc lodge and hollywood theaters are i think the ones that we vocally support the most often how many how many times someone should go through the podcast archives here and you know list off how many times i've mentioned the hollywood theater because i'm I'm a slave to them i love them (laughs) every few episodes so that's a good one to support as well if you feel like donating to like portland institution as well yeah and just any anywhere near you as well, you know, look at yeah. your local art house theaters and, and support them in any way you can. I'm sure like they have membership services or, or merchandise. Uh, I have a Hollywood theater uh, glass that I drink out of every day. I look at it <laughs> and I use it for, for all of my beverages. You can tell how desperate we're getting. Uh... Uh, email your senators and ask them to support theaters. Do whatever you can. <laughs> Speaking of insect politicians that was smooth i thought we were going to use that transition point earlier when we got into (laughs) politics but i wrapped it around smartly yes we're uh talking about the most insect politician film out there uh the fly uh which actually was inspired from an inspect politician uh this last week if i recall correctly (laughs) It's true. Uh, apropos of nothing, though, we're we're doing this anyway. Like we we don't want it just to be because you know Pence was visited by a fly. Of course, we're not only <laughs> going to talk about that, but uh, 
it makes it so comical. No, it was just it was really funny. Uh, I didn't actually watch that that debate, but the fact mm-hmm. that that was the big takeaway I kind of missed when <laughs> you know that something so innocuous and, and ridiculous could derail an entire you know political discussion. Anyway, <laughs> this but but it was the the uh, in, inciting incident for you to watch the fly, which you apparently hadn't done before. Not in full. I've seen bits and pieces. Uh, of course, you've seen like the pictures and some clips that are pretty formidable to body horror, especially. Uh, I I really haven't gone on a huge Cronenberg journey before this year, so uh, I've seen some of the mainline stuff. I've seen a few oddities, but uh, to get to some of these main pictures, I, I think this is pretty formative. Watch probably going to be the best of the month. I. I, I loved it right away. I, I fell for it immediately. There's nothing I really have against it. I mean, it's it's really hard to beat. I, I'm impressed with it constantly because uh, I would I would argue that it's the most commercial of Cronenberg's, um, you know, kind of main body horror films. Uh, you know, yeah. stuff like Scanners or uh, Videodrome or Existence are, are a lot more kind of like experimental and a little more like like narratively offbeat. This yeah. this one, The Fly, is very uh, easy to get behind. Very kind of you know. Uh, like relatable love, like romance plot, kind of clear direction throughout, um, and, and has like the biggest star appeal, I think, between Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis at the time, and and was also like the most nominal studio project I think he had. Uh, and then it's incredible to consider that despite all of this kind of like s- seemingly like like uh, less esoteric uh, approach, it is just so masterful in its execution and individual you know, to his style that is still manages to be potentially the best of, of his entire output. I was watching a bit with my wife. She's seen it a couple times before. And she always surprises me when she's seen like culty things because she doesn't talk about them until we get to them. Uh, uh, she said something interesting that she, the first time she saw it, she thought it was a romantic comedy for the first hour, which <laughs> makes total sense to me. Like uh, the thing that makes The Fly so watchable and not just horror movie, like, it's a good rom-com like you see like layers that would come out in like sex lights videotape here with like the videotaping and like the the intrinsic like quality of you know film and filmmaking like there's there are ideas here and gian davis kind of adds a template for like animate bell too so there's like a certain kind of american sweetheartness to it as well and it is a sweet movie for a part of the runtime yeah no i mean the the emotional angle of it is absolutely the crux and what makes everything work and it's how you know like intrinsic to the tragedy of the story and uh gina davis i think is like the main proponent of that her performance is so incredible and you know enrapturing especially towards the end once things really kind of go off the rails like she's just so devoted to the total like emotional destruction of of this you know relationship uh and and the tragedy of it inherent there but the chemistry that she shares with jeff goldblum and the real like budding relationship that they display on screen is uh incredible uh they were actually in an actual relationship during the filming of this film and that's part of how they they kind of got wrapped into the project together uh and and i think that really comes through uh, and, and and you see the development of that. Jeff Goldblum is, is really great as this uh, offbeat, like semi-attractive, but still gawkish, nerdy guy, you know, who doesn't know how to interact. I love how the film just like comes right away with it. Like there's no pretense to it. There's no setup or anything. It's just the first scene is him 
interacting with Gina Davis and telling her about his experiment. Like, bam, yeah. we're just in it. No, you know, you know, we don't need any bullshit set up there. I, I feel like he has become something like a sex symbol because of roles like this <laughs> where, where he begins very sexual, but I feel like it's good at degrading that, but playing into it at the same time. So uh, I feel like it gets like a couple textures of that, which is one, it's creepy and two, it's still sexy and really fun to watch. The evolution of, of Jeff Goldblum as an actor <laughs> is just so interesting because this this is like the ultimate version of the kind of person he was in films up until this point. Yes. Like I watched <laughs> I watched Invasion of the Body Snatchers again recently as well. And he's uh. and he's similarly like super like toothpick thin, like it looks like the skin just hangs off his bones. <laughs> he's kinda awkward and moving around. I think about him in like Nashville too, and the small part he has there, and he's just yes. like this weirdo, you know, kind of running around behind the scenes and stuff. And then eventually he did evolve in like the 80s and 90s into this like genuine like sex symbol kind of actor. By the time we get to Jurassic Park, he's just like boom full like you know uh, you know you know incredible like screen hottie, and <laughs> and now he's like like modern day Jeff Goldblum is this really like bizarre like flamboyant hipster you know grandpa almost and he's really incredible to see like i love just he's uh, really stayed cool somehow like despite like the projects he's taken he, he also does some weird fucking experimental stuff and uh, yeah. he stayed cool and and you know you love seeing him pop up I mean, he's just as funny as he's ever been you know in like wes anderson films or like you know the the small role he had in the <laughs> marvel movies and thor it's just so great <laughs> to see him in things yeah even like serious things like the mountain or something i mean there's a he's also someone who doesn't get cheapened by being in marvel like he shows up and you're watching it because jeff goldblum's in it suddenly it's not because you're watching a marvel movie it's it becomes his scene i I would say he's definitely one of the reasons why ragnarok is the best of the mcu films oh i completely (laughs) agree if we were ever going to do a marvel film maybe ragnarok another one um I, I feel like there's uh, just such a, a fun career here, too. He, he is such a fun guy, and he's so engaged with his art that uh, he, he really seems to care about the movies, too. I mean, he's in everything, and, and he loves it. This is, this is one of, uh, uh, you know, I, I would say maybe his best performance. You know, he does such yeah. a great job in the lead here. He's charismatic, but again, he, he taps into that kind of, you know, gawkish caricature that, you know, you're expecting of a character like like brundle he displays the the emotional vulnerability of someone who who doesn't have like the social skills necessarily like it does seem brash and you know a little uh forced the the fact that the moment like gina davis has to leave because she's being blackmailed by john getz's character uh that he just gets immediately drunk and is like (laughs) fuck it uh i'm going through the telepod now yeah Uh, i know it's been 20 minutes but you know I'm confident like but but I think he sells that in the character so well that it's despite the the ridiculousness of that leap in logic like I I buy into it and I'm and I'm totally okay with it. <laughs> I like that his character's named Brundle first of all. <laughs> <laughs> Brundle Fly becomes such a funny invention and twist on Jeff Goldblum like because he's becoming a sex symbol to watch him slowly uh, fall away. But those were like my first nightmares as a kid was that my body is like made of foam and it was like slowly deteriorating. So I've always had kind of a mind for like body horror and 
it's always like affected me like on a more visceral intended level than than regular horror would i mean i have that physical reaction when i watch body horror that that i'm kind of looking for always in horror well that's the thing with uh cronenberg films is that the body horror is a is a conduit for a more interpersonal fear you know and this idea of lack of control over identity and change uh and very specifically there like this idea that you know it's it's less that seth brundle is losing all of his physical human features and more so that he is losing his identity as a person and he is slowly morphing into this monster you know uh in a mental capacity even more than a physical one and i think that's the reflection in in all of uh cronenberg's work you know we talked about it as well with the sense of loss of identity and dead ringers you know of course is a good example and uh you know i, I would apply that to, to most all of cronenberg films is that the body horror is a reflection of an internal horror more than anything that's what i love so much about his his son's word possessor too is that it's such a identity horror it's such a new take on that identity horror and there there are so many ways you could go i think cronenberg already understood that back when he was making this that uh you could go in any direction to say anything about a person's mentality and um basically what's wrong with them Mm -hmm. you could really praise the film uh just on on the principles of its physical effects as well because you know they are so grotesque and disturbing and effective even something as small as like just the thick hairs growing out of his back is really disturbing enough on its own or like the arm wrestling scene where he breaks the guy's hand it's a small thing and an easy effect to accomplish but it's so effective you know and it just continues to ramp as the film goes on and he becomes more more grotesque and disgusting i know uh you know (laughs) like if i ever wanted to gross out a friend who doesn't like horror films, this is a hundred percent the film I would, I would go for because even as someone who, who loves this kind of thing, it can be hard to watch. <laughs> yeah. I think about it like our friend will probably puke in buckets. While he oh watches. yeah. Um, he's, he's disgusted. But, but again, like the visceral reaction to it, you have to, to compliment more than, you know, feel like turned away by like, course, I think uh, even if you find this to be the most repulsive thing on the planet, you will undoubtedly be impressed by how effective it is and how not, it ties that in with the themes of the story. It's not like the guy's just breaking his hand either. It's like he pushes his hand all the way back. It's not like his hand just basically breaks. It's like you see like the ligaments and shit popping out and, and he's doing it like for this like skeezy bet to take this girl home. Like there's there's ugly subtext underneath it and it, it all feels bad in a good way. And it's that great moment, like, that's really where the st- story starts to turn for Goldblum's character there, and that he's just he's just so emanating with energy now with it, which he doesn't realize is, like, a, a, yeah. a bad effect of it, and this idea of becoming, like, so scatterbrained, like a fly is, almost, and that, you know, so singularly so focused. Right, oh, and this idea that he, like, he doesn't even pay attention to the fact that he's, like, destroyed this guy's arm, you know, he's just like, I win, I'm, I'm out of here with this girl, it's time to Have go to the teleporter. The- have you seen the 50s fly? I have to imagine it's very different. It, from what I understand, it's very different of the film. Like this, so, so I would say that the, this version of the fly is part of this trilogy that we all kind of regard as fantastic body horror remakes of 1950s sci-fi films in the same vein mm-hmm. as The Thing and Body Snatchers and like The Blob. And I, I have seen all of those original ones except for The Fly. Like okay. I, I, I just got to The Thing from Another World as well, the Howard Hawks film this year. 
Uh, I did the original Body Snatchers last year as well, so maybe I'll do The Fly next year. Sounds good. Have you have you seen the uh, the sequels to this, by the way? No. Uh, Neither of us. <laughs> we did our reading this time. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's, it's, it's one of those where, you know, unlike something like Psycho, where I was promised by... Uh, people that there there was value in the in the sequel. I have not heard good things about The Fly Two. Or... The one thing I know about it is it it's directed by the guy who did the effects for this film. So much of like the grotesque, uh, you know, yeah, practical stuff is maintained, and it, it doubles down on some of that stuff I've heard. But that's all I've heard that's good. Know, sometimes that works out. I'm, I'm more inclined to think really? that, like, like one example I know that I tried is that uh, you know the famous special effects guru Stan Winston, who did mm. so much of the puppet work for like uh, Aliens and Jurassic Park, directed uh, Pumpkinhead, uh, and I thought that film was terrible. So, <laughs> okay, uh, fun for me just just for the Pumpkinhead of it all, but I feel like that might be it. Yeah, I mean it's a well-designed creature, but uh, yeah. bad film. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I feel like the the creature design here is just so great. I mean, the transformation could have been super dumb. I imagine it is in the '50s version, uh, just by consequence of its that, age. I don't. I don't think there's a transformation in the '50s film. Okay, I'm pretty sure they not. just come across the guy and he has a fly head on a human body. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay i imagine it's hokey as fuck anyway just because it's 50s and it probably like the sci-fi was from that era yeah I, I would say of all of them the original invasion of the body snatchers never felt hokey to me that one feels like genuinely great and inventive and and the horror of it is is superb uh the, the other experiences i've had you know 50s are very hokey <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> Uh, like the one I watched this week, like the the Incredible Shrinking Man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's got its like technical merits, but yeah, that, it's all <laughs> concept. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this this never gets there though. Like this is so engaging because you have like the romance in the one hour, um, uh, almost Spider Man like uh, uh, um, origin story there. That, that really works toward building something else. So you're very invested by the time it, it deforms. You know, one thing I found on this last watch is that, and, and it's the merit of any great movie, is that no matter how many times I've seen it, where the moment where he leads up to doing like the the, the pod where he goes into it, mm-hmm. I always hope, I'm like, maybe maybe it won't happen this time. Maybe the fly yeah. will just avoid it. Like, like it's just, it's one of those things that it's like, it's just such a chance happening that it's like, it won't happen this time. He'll he'll be able to go through. It'll be fine. His experiment will go successfully. But there's a little bit of hard stuff in here to watch, like like the baby that like when when she gets impregnated. And, oh and yeah, that great the baby and everything. It's... Yeah, there's a funny story, but I don't know if you know, but Cronenberg uh, yeah. is actually he has a cameo there. He's the guy delivering the the maggot baby that comes out and the reason oh, yeah, he, i think i noticed yes the reason he did that is that when he met martin scorsese for the first time scorsese told him that he looked like a beverly hills plastic surgeon <laughs> and so he, he decided to take that as you know a chance to to kind of inhabit this uh, kind of role that would you know reflect that <laughs> but yeah that's that's such a terrifying nightmare sequence uh and i think it's so incredibly done well and 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 this idea, like, then it has this commentary about the urgency of a you know, woman's agency over her body. Then she wants to, you know, eject this this potentially malformed baby immediately. 
Yeah, there are some difficult moments, such as the abortion there, that um, that stick with you. But uh, it's things like uh, his ear or his jaw falling off that are oh, yeah. um, they're so tangible and felt, uh, uh, so deeply felt when his body's literally deteriorating on the screen. It starts with like the fingernails coming off, and oh, uh, that's yeah. that's a yeah. sensation that I think everyone can relate to. And again, it's that same sense of like going back to talking about one of my favorite horror films like the decision in uh making misery to to do the foot break instead of chopping off it's just such a more tangible concept for people to get behind so the the pain of it feels so much more real and so that idea of these these really real like like slow deteriorations and you know like kind of basic you know functions being lost is you know where the evolution of the horror really starts in in the fly and just how you know it, it allows you to buy into the you know the grotesque malformation evolution, you know, very easily as it goes along. Um, I feel like he's just so good at establishing that and we get to really feel all the impact of his descent into flydom. I, I, I like how he becomes a fly. Uh, it feels, I don't know if believable is the right word, but it's fun the way that he transforms and you, you want to believe in it for the sake of the movie. Well, because it's done in, in such this incremental fashion and it, and it mm. starts with coarse hairs popping up and, and his skin becoming blotchier and, you know, more so like you, you can, you know, like you're, you're kind of brought into this a lot more of uh, the evolution there to a point where once he does transform into this giant grotesque space bug at the end, uh, you, you still see the person that, that kind of inhabited that, that carcass. Yeah, it, it lifts itself through like these genre tendencies to get to like a very fun conclusion. I mean, I love where it gets to. It it feels like um, a, a really perfect 80s movie. I, I don't have so many complaints. Among Body Horror, it must be the best or one of the best ones. I haven't mm-hmm. fully explored the genre, but I imagine this is one of the peaks. I, it feels like it to me, particularly because it maintains that tragic kind of like like greek tragic kind of storyline throughout all the way up into the end when when he makes that kind of final choice as the fusion of the space bug and pod and he and he lifts the gun up to his head to just say finish it you know it's that perfect tragic end to it and it really hammers home that emotional you know uh hammer yeah, absolutely um i'm really glad we got to it uh, i i loved his son's movie now i want to explore more Cronenberg. I know we talked about Videodrome a few times, which I still feel like we could do next year. Yeah, yeah. at least uh, if, if I hope you can get to it this year, and if you do, you know, let's mention it in, in the discussion, just in like the Hollywood, or the Halloween <laughs> discussion. <laughs> well, thanks Calvin for getting together with me to talk about this one. This was a fantastic uh, discussion, fantastic movie, and uh, just elated to be here every week with you. Yeah, um, I, I'm really grateful we get this time, because like we say, it's by one you know it's my best chance to socialize today so i always really uh, treasure our friendship and our meetings so thank you david thank you calvin looking forward to next week oh, I got plenty of time.